0: This is the History of the World Podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 38, The Beginning of the Roman Empire. In order to make the most of this week's episode, we need to summarise where we got to in the chronological story of the Roman Republic and Julius Caesar. The event of Caesar's death took place on the Ides of March. The phrase the Ides of March has been romanticised in relation to the death of Julius Caesar, but in modern terms it is the 15th of March. The Romans called this day the Ides of March because they did not use a numerical dating system. Caesar had ascended to a position of great influence within the Roman Republic and as such, there were many people within the Republic who had grave concerns about this. Caesar advocated a much more socialist style of national states than those conservative Republicans would have liked. Caesar's vision of the Roman Republic seemed to threaten the wealth of the minority who had previously held the majority of Rome's wealth. Many men conspired to plot the murder of Julius Caesar over a number of months. The ringleaders were Cassius, a man who had fought in the ill-fated Roman army of Crassus at the Battle of Carrhae, and Brutus, a man who had supported the cause of Pompey in his final years, who was Caesar's main opponent during the civil wars. The conspiracy was successful and Caesar had been permanently removed from the political game board. We could be mistaken for thinking that this marked the end of an era and that things would go back to some kind of normality. Caesar's death would change things forever. The conspirators named themselves Liberatores, which means the Liberators. In their mind, they were liberating Rome from Caesar's rule. However, Caesar had had trusted allies during the civil wars of the 40s BCE and quite possibly the most well-known of these men was a man called Marcus Antonius, anglicised as Mark Antony. And Mark Antony would be very interested in taking up Caesar's cause in the wake of his death. In terms of who the real brains were behind the conspiracy of the liberators, some have pointed the finger of suspicion in the direction of the now ageing but long-term highly influential politician, Cicero. Cicero had opposed Caesar's tyrannical bid for power in Rome, but this may not have been anything personal. Cicero had opposed the formation of what we call the First Triumvirate, which saw a political alliance between Caesar, Pompey and Crassus, some 16 years earlier, and the reason why is because he saw it as unconstitutional. So it seems that Cicero was very much a firm believer in the constitution of Rome, and although he may have been present at the Senate when Caesar was murdered, he is not thought to have taken an active part in Caesar's physical assault, which led to his death. If Cicero had feared the outcome of Caesar's tyranny, then he may have feared that of Mark Antony even more. Caesar was actually one of the two consuls of Rome on his death, with the other being Mark Antony. Mark Antony had been very quick to praise the direction of Caesar's politics, and Cicero would see this as Mark Antony's bid to take Caesar's mantle. Mark Antony would represent a beacon of hope to those hopeful individuals who had served under Caesar, and those who would have gained from Caesar's reforms, all of whom must have feared missing out on what was owed to them after Caesar's murder. Cicero would speak more favorably of another individual who was making waves in the aftermath of Caesar's death. He was a great nephew of Caesar and a man who Caesar had entrusted with responsibilities in his will. His name was Gaius Octavius, and he was quick to change his name to Gaius Julius Caesar, almost as if to represent himself as Caesar's own son, which is something that Caesar himself would have condoned. This renaming of Octavian unnerved Cicero, who feared another Caesar, but it appears that Cicero feared Mark Antony's leadership even more. Cicero was also critical of the liberators who had effectively taken Rome from Caesar with no confident plan of action. Octavian was taking influence of the lands to the south of Rome while Mark Antony was gaining influence of the lands in the north. Mark Antony clearly saw himself as the true inheritor of Caesar's legacy and not Octavian, who was just an 18-year-old and comparatively undeserved. Mark Antony would march into Rome itself, and Cicero would publicly denounce Mark Antony, causing Mark Antony to accuse Cicero of being the brains behind Caesar's murder. Despite Cicero having a lot of reservations about Octavian and his own ambitions, Cicero and the Roman Senate saw Octavian as the lesser of two evils and determined that it was Mark Antony himself who needed to be regulated, and Octavian was the man who would be the best man to do so. And the Senate chose to back Octavian purely as a means to deny power to Mark Antony. In the meantime, the actual ringleaders of the liberators Cassius and Brutus had fled to Greece as they had decided that in order for them to be able to keep Rome from falling into the hands of anybody associated with Caesar that they would need to build an army to stand any chance of success. So the Roman Republic was now in absolute chaos with many factions competing against each other for supremacy. Cicero, being a man of the Republic, was desperate and heartbroken. Octavian would fight alongside the Roman Senate who were trying to resist Mark Antony, so Octavian had effectively become the enemy within. Mark Antony's army had successfully killed both Roman consuls of the year 43 BCE, and this allowed Octavian to make a very bold move. Despite Cicero allowing Octavian to become a Roman senator as a teenager, something unheard of, Octavian would take command of consular forces and after repelling Mark Antony he would make a bid to become a Roman consul, which he saw through successfully. He was only around 20 years of age. the second triumvirate octavian's incredible rise to prominence at such a young age would come to bite cicero in the backside cicero was very much a conservative of rome looking to preserve the tradition of the senate much like many of the senators all hoping to maintain the power of the Senate. Despite Mark Antony and Octavian individually having a much more socialist agenda following in the footsteps of Julius Caesar, they had been brought into conflict with each other in trying to vie for Caesar's vacated seat in Roman politics. However, with the success of Octavian and his ascension to the rank of consul, Octavian's men had no further desire to battle with Mark Antony recognising him as an ally to the popularist cause. So Octavian had to concede that his battle with Mark Antony was over. The Senate therefore voted to remove Octavian's troops from his command and Octavian was left somewhat powerless despite being the consul. It could be fair to say that Cicero had utilised Octavian to achieve his own goals. Another man who was an influential politician in Rome and an ally of Julius Caesar, was a man called Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Lepidus was elected as the replacement Pontifex Maximus upon Caesar's death, which was the highest priesthood position within the Republic. The Senate had also attempted to use his influence against Mark Antony, but it may have been the case that Lepidus was in secret negotiations with Mark Antony behind the Senate's back. When Octavian had effectively been curbed of his influence as Consul, Lepidus saw an opportunity to entice Octavian into an alliance with the man who had been his enemy on the battlefield just a short time before, Mark Antony. With Lepidus, Mark Antony and Octavian looking to form an alliance, this could spell disaster for Cicero and the Roman Senate, especially those optimate senators who had opposed Julius Caesar's reforms. This alliance is retrospectively called the Second Triumvirate, and although it is often compared to the First Triumvirate, the difference here is that Lepidus, Antony and Octavian actually managed to get their bid for dictatorial rights within the Roman Republic ratified by the People's Assembly of Rome and passed into law through the Senate. The law was called Lex Titia and it completely undermined the Roman Senate and those conservative senators like Cicero who desperately wanted to stop the progression and transition of Roman politics driven by Julius Caesar. Caesar's legacy was continuing to grow, even though he was dead. Despite the grave differences between Mark Antony and Octavian, the two men recognised that by fighting each other to be Caesar's spiritual successor, it would ultimately result on their division and conquest by the optimates of Rome. By healing the rift between them, they could concentrate on taking control of the Senate that had effectively murdered the people's champion, Julius Caesar, and punished those responsible, Cassius and Brutus. They could also ensure that Caesar's ambitions to strip the wealthy of their wealth and distribute it among the people was realised. One of the first acts of the Triumvirate was to rid the Senate and Rome of their political opponents. The hit list numbered, into the thousands and thanks to some very choice words by Cicero during the unrest since Caesar's death, Cicero could feel confident that Mark Antony would have ensured that Cicero's name was high on the hit list. A 64-year-old Cicero was being carried in a litter to a ship which would take him to a safe haven. However, Cicero would not complete this journey and was apprehended before he even made it to the ship. Decapitated and hands also removed, Cicero's murder was iconic of the near 5,000 murders of the political opponents of the new triumvirate. Confiscated and vacated lands were given to Caesar's military veterans and other plebeians in line with Caesar's intentions during his lifetime. Now, the attention needed to shift to those dangerous individuals who had orchestrated Caesar's murder, who would be ruling and preparing for the backlash in the Roman provinces of the East. The Liberator's Civil War The group of highly influential Romans who had planned and carried out the murder of Julius Caesar had branded themselves as the Liberators, who in their own minds had saved Rome from the radical thinking reformist Julius Caesar. However, they soon left Rome for the relative safety of the eastern provinces and during their absence the events surrounding the formation of the Second Triumvirate had transpired. The Liberators had taken control of the Eastern Provinces which the Triumvirate could not allow to continue now that matters had been calmed in Rome itself. Mark Antony and Octavian would set off for Macedonia to do battle with Cassius and Brutus and they would take no less than 28 Roman legions with them. With each of the two opposing forces being led by two great commanders it is maybe not surprising that both factions splintered into two. The more experienced of each faction, Mark Antony and Cassius would engage with each other, while the two less experienced commanders, Octavian and Brutus, would engage in a separate confrontation. Antony defeated Cassius and then joined Octavian to put pressure on Brutus. Brutus couldn't resist the two commanders together and was defeated himself. Both Cassius and Brutus chose to commit suicide and so the reconquest of the Roman Republic was complete. This episode of the Liberator's Civil War is called the Battle of Philippi. In the aftermath of this event, it is clear that the three men of the Second Triumvirate had now control of most of the Roman Republic and each man was allocated responsibility in a similar way to the first triumvirate. Lepidus gained control of Hispania, Mark Antony stayed in the east and oversaw the eastern provinces, and Octavian went back to Rome to look after the west. Still, both Mark Antony and Octavian harboured the same ambitions that they had before the formation of the second triumvirate, which was to emulate the rise to prominence of Julius Caesar and take up the role of the most important politician of Rome. So both Mark Antony and Octavian would still see each other as a rival in their personal quest. In the years of the first triumvirate, the two men with political differences, Pompey and Caesar, attempted marriage alliances as a means to consolidate their alliance. Mark Antony and Octavian would attempt to do the same thing Mark Antony's wife was a woman called Fulvia and she had a lot of influence in Rome. Fulvia's daughter by her previous husband was a young woman called Claudia Pulcra and she would be married to Octavian. Fulvia's power in Rome was as a result of the sheer apathy of Lepidus who didn't seem to be in any way motivated to not allow Fulvia to take over. However, when Octavian returned to Rome himself to take power back, he found that Fulvia was not willing to give up her slice of the power, and she decided to take her son-in-law on, in the name of her husband Mark Antony. This would escalate into the Perusine War, which would see Fulvia bond with the younger brother of Mark Antony, whose name was Lucius Antonius, and who was also one of the elected consuls of Rome. Mark Antony himself was not involved. He was trying to build relationships with Egypt in preparation for an inevitable renewal of military exchanges with the mighty Parthians of Persia. One in the process of gaining Egypt's support, he would grow close to the Egyptian pharaoh queen, Cleopatra VII even impregnating her. With Octavian no longer having any desire to be linked to Fulvia, he would divorce her daughter. Fulvia was seeing her powerful links fading away. Her son-in-law Octavian divorcing himself from her family and her husband Mark Antony having a sexual affair with the Egyptian pharaoh. Octavian defeated the forces of Lucius Antonius, and Lucius was sent away from Rome. Octavian knew that Fulvia was the real enemy, and Fulvia fled the city and headed eastwards into the lands controlled by her husband. When she reached Greek lands, she died of a mysterious disease, but we don't know if there was any foul play. Mark Antony would not have been allowed to marry Cleopatra as she was not a Roman, so that would not have been a motivation for him to murder her. But Mark Antony was certainly not happy about the fuss that Fulvia had caused in Rome, and was quick to repair the strength of the triumvirate by marrying Octavian's sister, Octavia. Mark Antony would head back east to plan conflicts with the Parthians, but he would also remain close to Cleopatra and farewell against the Parthians coming away in a stronger position than he went in. Despite not being able to take Parthian territory, he was able to gain influence over Armenia. However, Octavian was just waiting for the day when Mark Antony would turn the tables on him. Cleopatra already had a son by Caesar who may grow to be an opponent of Octavian within Roman politics, Never mind the fact that Cleopatra also had children by Mark Antony. Octavian would view Cleopatra as a genuine threat to his future power. Octavian expelled the relatively insignificant Lepidus from the Triumvirate before deciding to make Mark Antony look like the bad guy in the minds of the Romans. Octavian belittled the alliance between Mark Antony and Cleopatra by saying that Mark Antony was completely under her spell and influence and was no longer capable of the independent thought that was needed to rule the Republic. Octavian then read out a copy of Mark Antony's will to the Roman Senate, specifically pointing out that Mark Antony intended to leave his wealth to Cleopatra and her children instead of to his wife Octavia. It was this that convinced the Senate to recognise Mark Antony as an enemy of the state and further to this they would declare war on Pharaoh Cleopatra VII of Ptolemaic Egypt. The Last War of the Roman Republic Mark Antony had not given up on the Roman Republic and there was still significant support for him back in Rome even though Mark Antony married Pharaoh Cleopatra in 32 BCE and subsequently divorced Octavian's sister Octavia. Roman tradition dictated that Romans were not permitted to marry non-Romans but Mark Antony's ambition was to change the Roman Republic and move the capital city from Rome to Alexandria. He was already allocating the lands of the East to Cleopatra's children including her son with Julius Caesar, who had been declared the co-ruler of Egypt, alongside his mother. It appears that Mark Antony's vision of the Republic's future was a Romano-Egyptian one, even pledging to be laid to rest in Alexandria, which was something unheard of and quite shocking to those traditionalist senators who pledged their support to Octavian. Whenever tensions had become high between Octavian and Mark Antony previous to this, their troops had often refused to engage with each other, possibly because the brutal civil wars of the previous triumvirate were still fresh in the memory. So this is why Octavian targeted Cleopatra as the bad influence on Mark Antony, villainising her in the eyes of the Romans. He knew that Mark Antony would have to support her, and so he finally found a way to get his war with Mark Antony. So Antony and Cleopatra had come up with a naval strategy to take on Octavian's forces at a location near Actium on the western coast of the Balkan Peninsula. Although Antony's naval command could have been questionable, it may be the case that the plan was good, but there were defections within Antony's military forces and vital information was passed into the hands of Octavian's commanders, which hugely compromised the abilities of Mark Antony to succeed. Antony and Cleopatra had to flee the scene. Cleopatra headed back to Egypt, while Mark Antony fled to Libya in the hope that he could raise another army to defend himself against Octavian's pursuit. It was Octavian who initially struggled to raise an army quickly, which bought Mark Antony some time. But Mark Antony was floundering himself with his own army abandoned in Greece so he had to head east to the relative safety of Alexandria to try to raise an army there. When Octavian resumed his pursuit he arrived in Egypt and forced Mark Antony into an engagement with the army that he had mustered. But Octavian's forces defeated Mark Antony forcing him back into Alexandria. Many of Mark Antony's men felt that their position hemmed in at Alexandria was a futile one and chose to surrender to Octavian. This left Mark Antony completely powerless. The conflict was over. Mark Antony decided that suicide was now his only option and so he reportedly impaled himself on his own sword. In the aftermath, Pharaoh Cleopatra had no option now but to open negotiations with Octavian to try and preserve the Egyptian kingdom and to protect the futures of her children. If she could successfully negotiate with Octavian then maybe all was not lost. However, Octavian sped no sympathy for Cleopatra or her offspring and made it very clear that he would ensure that there could be no opportunity for any of them. He knew that they were likely to be a future threat, with all their links to the great men of Rome, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, and he needed them to be eliminated from the political picture. Cleopatra had lost her husband, her ally and her military forces, and also chose suicide as her way out. Octavian had successfully dealt with the issue of Antony and Cleopatra. Augustus Egypt had been successfully annexed and the Ptolemaic kingdom was over. Egypt was now just a province of the Roman Republic and there was now nobody of any great note who could challenge Octavian either on a military or a political level. He was the most powerful statesman of Rome. Julius Caesar had managed to get himself in a similar position around 15 years earlier, and Caesar made himself a dictator for life, but this was not enough to prevent the Senate from rising up against him. On reflection, the Romans may have regretted challenging Caesar as it had done more harm than good by plunging Rome into a series of conflicts that would have had their foreign enemies rubbing their hands together. So, would the Romans challenge Octavian in the same way that they had done to Caesar? Octavian decided that he wanted to lay down his powers in 27 BCE. However, the Senate decided that he be named Princeps of Rome, which is the first man of the state, similar to a president or a prime minister. As Princeps, he would hold Consular powers. He didn't really need to be declared as a dictator as the army was either loyal to him anyway, or they were Mark Antony's old legions who had been absorbed into Octavian's army after Mark Antony had fled to Africa. This meant that Octavian had the ability to dispatch forces to different areas of the Republic, so he was effectively doing most of the jobs that a dictator would be doing anyway. His personal name was changed to Augustus, meaning illustrious one. Over the coming years, Augustus was granted further powers. He had already been granted authority over Egypt, Gaul, Germania, Hispania and Syria and in 23 BCE he was also granted authority over all other provinces where he was declared Imperium Maeus. He was also declared as a tribune to the plebs which allowed him to represent the citizens of Rome. All of these honours and accolades amount to one certainty. That was that Augustus himself was now more powerful than the Roman Senate and the Roman Senate now answered to him because of the political powers that he now possessed. This would also mean that Augustus himself would be in a position to hand-pick the men who he wanted around him, and the men who he would ultimately want to succeed him. One man who he had great confidence in was Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. Agrippa had been loyal to Augustus throughout his conflicts with Antony and Cleopatra as a military commander, and after this time he was an integral part of the renovation of the city of Rome, Turning it into a comfortable place to live for all classes of citizen, building aqueducts and baths and enhancing the public services within the city itself, privileges previously exclusive to the wealthiest classes of Romans were now being extended to the population in general. Rome was becoming a very modern city. Agrippa himself would marry Augustus's daughter, Julia and would be granted the position of tribune to the plebs. It appeared that Agrippa was being groomed to become the successor to Augustus, but it is also important to state that Agrippa was a similar age to Augustus, so there was no guarantee that this would happen. During the year 12 BCE, Agrippa was on a campaign in Pannonia, which was an area of Rome's empire that was to the north of Illyria, and in turn the Balkan Peninsula. While there, Agrippa would contract an illness which would take his life. So Agrippa would not be the man to succeed Augustus, but Agrippa had contributed a lot to the administration and improvement of the empire. Empire. By now it would be accurate to say that with the ascension of Octavian to a position of supreme power, now as Augustus, we can recognise him as the equivalent to an Emperor of the Roman Republic. And so this is what historians would categorise as the tradition from Republic to Empire. The Parthians would have to respect the new stability of the Roman Empire and decided not to antagonise Augustus opting for more diplomatic solutions. When Agrippa died in 12 BCE, Augustus would press on with the Pannonian campaigns, but it would still be some time before Pannonia would be annexed into the Roman Empire. The Romans would have heavy influence over the lands to the north of their imperial lands up to the river Elba, which was significant as the threshold identified by Julius Caesar during his Gallic campaigns as the place where the Celtic land stopped and the Germanic land started. Really, this was just Caesar's way of differentiating between the tribes under his influence from the tribes that he had been unable to bring under his influence. However, it was still very much in Rome's interest to try and bring the Germans to heel. One of the key players in this ambition was a man called Tiberius. Tiberius had been married to the daughter of Agrippa, namely Vipsanius Agrippina. But upon Agrippa's death, he was forced to divorce her and marry Augustus' own daughter, Julia the Elder. Tiberius always resented this as he was in love with his first wife, Vipsania Agrippina. And Julia the Elder was adulterous during her marriage which drove Tiberius to flee Rome, rather than denounce the emperor's daughter. When Augustus called Tiberius back to Rome, he would utilise him in the Germanic campaigns and groom him to become his successor following the death of other candidates. However, in the year 6 CE, a revolt in Pannonia put the Germanic campaigns on hold and distracted Tiberius from this cause. When the Germanic campaigns were resumed, a new commander would be brought in to lead the Roman charge and his name was Publius Quinctilius Varus. Augustus's management of the empire's borders had been done with competence, with much done to consolidate Gallic, Hispanic, Syrian, Egyptian and Armenian gains and influences. So Augustus felt confident that he would be successful against the Germanic tribes. However Varus turned out not to be a great choice of replacement for Tiberius. Varus was double-crossed by a man called Arminius, who had served in the Roman military for many years, but was actually of Germanic origin. Arminius had convinced Varus in the year 9 CE that there had been a rebellion and this prompted Varus to take three legions through the Teutoburg forest to deal with the problem. It turned out to be a disaster for the Romans. Arminius had orchestrated the whole sequence of events and Varus had walked into his trap as Arminius turned his loyalties away from Rome and back to his Germanic roots. Varus's legions were slaughtered in the forest and Varus himself took his own life. The Germans had dealt the Romans a humiliating defeat with thousands killed and territory lost. Augustus seemed to have lost a lot of his confidence and bravado after this defeat and decided not to exhaust too much of his mental energy on further military campaigns for the remainder of his time as emperor. The Romans certainly never really progressed on that Germanic frontier throughout the entire existence of the empire. Augustus ultimately passed away in the year 14 CE and his personal powers passed into the hands of Tiberius who has been labelled as Rome's second emperor. The transition of Rome from republic to empire was not a decision made by Rome. In fact, the constitution of Rome was gradually revised in the aftermath of the death of Julius Caesar and over the course of the following two decades. It was an alteration in the way that individuals governed Rome, made necessary because the traditional conservative ways were not being accepted by the population and this allowed individuals such as Gaius Marius and Julius Caesar to gain crowd support to represent the citizens of Rome in a manner that the citizens wished for. Despite the actions of factions such as the Liberators, Rome had progressed too far down a road of reform to be able to turn back. And this is why individuals such as Mark Antony and Octavian were battling for control of Rome and individuals such as Cicero were removed from the scene. This was part of the story of the demise of the Roman Republic and the creation of the Roman Empire, represented now by the fact that an individual emperor was preferred to lead Rome than a senate of corruptible individuals. Well it's good to be back making proper episodes again after a short break and that was as fascinating as it comes with that aftermath of Julius Caesar's death and exploring the lives of Octavian and Mark Antony and touching once again on that link to Cleopatra and um, if you like Cleopatra then um, we'll be making a special episode about her um, in just a couple of weeks. Next week, however, it's going to be the Battle of Actium. We're just going to take a closer look at that big conflict between Mark Antony and Octavian. Um, Definitely worth investigating further and finding out exactly what happened there. Now, just before we took that short break, we did make a number of battle episodes, um, about four of them in a row. And um, we really need to start establishing where these battles took place. And so um, take um, take a look around in the next couple of days. We'll be updating the maps. It's been a long, long time since we published any map. Um, so we'll start doing that again. Um, if you want to support the podcast, you certainly can do that. And we'd really love it if you could. And it really does help to enhance the podcast and enables me to invest in more materials that can enhance the quality of the podcast. And if you want to do that, you just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and just sign up to make a monthly donation. We give out rewards for those people who accumulate donations over any length of time. So why not go and have a little look at that? In the past, I've been approached a couple of times and asked by people who don't want to make a monthly donation. They said, I'd rather make a one-off donation. I know what I'm donating and I'll donate it and then that'll be my lot. Well, you can now go to the website, the, history of the world website and you can buy me a book for $1. So uh, if you want to contribute more than $1, then... Just buy me more than one book. If you're interested, just go along to the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. When you make a contribution to the podcast, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. As has Christine Sings, who has uh, become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week. Thank you very much to Christine. Reviews this week. I've um, received a review from Julie Rose 2020 from Canada, who's put Picking on Canadians. Just reached the episode where you pick on Canada, Volume 2, Episode 15. Too funny. Don't mind us. Take our reservation as a sign of affection. We're here to politely listen. Keep up the good work. Best Wishes from Toronto. Do you know, I was actually really, I didn't want to pick on Canadians. I just wanted you to uh, repus- represent yourself well, let's say. So it was, it was really a, a message of support rather than picking on you. But anyway, thank you very much. I'm all very grateful for the uh, listeners from Canada and what a fascinating history your country has. So I uh, look forward to talking more about Canada as the entire podcast series Get, uh goes on. Jay San has been in touch with the podcast and has put, I am really loving your history podcast, mate. I have an interest in and have had ha- uh, and have had had, oh, goodness me, you've put one too many hads in there, and uh, have had a few books on ancient Mesopotamia lying around for a while here and found them to be, uh, found them a bit impenetrable. After boshing these podcasts, I can now dip in and out of them with much more understanding. Well, I'm very pleased actually, that's um, one of the the remits of the show is to try and simplify and make history accessible. So I'm pleased that I've been able to do that for you and thank you very much for writing in and letting me know how you feel. Let's quickly dip into some Facebook messages. So a couple of private messages got sent to me. Um, John S. Smith has put, Chris, if history was taught like your podcast, as a continuing story. Boom. People of all school ages would appreciate history so very much more. Thanks for the podcast. I'm only at episode 20. Uh, Trey Pressner has put, uh, found your podcast a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic job. I'm up to volume two and can't wait. Learning so much. Thank you for doing a great job. Trey from New Orleans. And uh, Michael Melley has put, Hello Chris, I love your podcast and I'm a big fan. I've just listened to episode 14 and loved it so much that I actually have some criticism of the other 13. I hope you don't mind. Every time that you revealed that new sc- discoveries have caused us to revise our understanding of prehistory, I immediately wonder why you have given us that misinformation in the first place. I get that it's impossible to pinpoint the exact date of the first Homo sapiens, but it seems entirely unnecessary to have told us that it was 200,000 years ago, only to revise that number in a later episode. And the same goes for the news that australopithecines are potentially a side branch of the human evolutionary family tree. Maybe it's just me, but I feel that the material would be better presented with only the best fitted theory that has survived the latest discoveries. That's not to mean that I don't love your delivery. It's great when you say, "Okay, so humans must have started wearing clothes 100,000 years ago. Well, no, it's not that simple. That quick reversal is an iconic aspect of your style and I find it very unique compared to other educational materials. I love the way that you phrase things and I love your accent. Keep doing your thing and providing such a great history lesson. Uh, Thank you very much, Michael. Yeah, very interesting, actually. Um, Sometimes I might be guilty of um, writing an episode and then finding out that my own information needs to be revised in a later episode when I've discovered a bit more. And uh, I think that's partially a hazard of um, me not being a a total expert in the whole of history, which is pretty much impossible for anyone, I, I would imagine. There's so much information to absorb and and uh, as I've um, said in a in uh, like interviews with Nick Barksdale at the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages I, I did mention to him that my expert areas are really in, in British history in the last 1000 years and and European history in the last 100 years is sort of the um sort of the what the, the areas that I have studied more than anything else I think um, but then also Uh, There's there's another hazard as well, not just in the fact that I'm discovering information I might be reading from old sources from time to time, uh, but also that there are revisions to the information uh, since I've actually published the podcast itself. So, like some of the information from 2018, um, you know, certainly from prehistoric volume one has actually changed you know or we've added something more to it but i think michael i think you're probably gaining quite a lot from the podcast in the fact that you are developing your own understanding now to a point where you can criticize me and i think the fact that you have spotted these uh anomalies has actually made your understanding uh even better so um, look, it might be a, light, not a convenient excuse for me to say something like that. But then also I do think that, you know, this is the goal of the podcast is to help those people who are interested in learning more to actually understand what they're learning as well as just to know what they're learning. So I appreciate the message, Michael. I think you bang on the money. I think you've got it uh, bang on. And, uh, you know, when when I do get it wrong, I, I, I apologise and, and I wish it was a perfect um production but sometimes um you know a lot of it is down to opinion um with with history so um it may or may not be accurate to say that the first Homo sapiens were around between 200 and three hundred thousand years ago but it's just really based on some quite tenuous evidence really so um interesting message nonetheless, and, I th- and thank you Michael thank you so much for writing in. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for listening and uh, thank you also for your patience while I took a, a short breather for a couple of weeks. It's, uh, it's hard work to knock out a podcast episode every week sometimes when there's other stuff going on uh, that I have to take care of. So, uh, But as long as I'm not being, uh, not being pulled away from my work too much... It's an absolute pleasure to write and present these episodes to you. So we look forward to more and more and more coming up in the future. But until next week where we'll be looking at uh, some more Octavian and Mark Antony and their conflict, uh, their ultimate conflict at the Battle of Actium. Uh, From me this week, it's uh, thank you very much, goodbye and be good everyone. Please be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.